This is made possible by Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. Everybody to the politics, politics, politics program for September 9th, 2022. Your old pal Justin Robert Young joining you and again from Austin, Texas. We got a great show for you here today. We're gonna take a little bit of a deep dive into the Nevada Senate race. Always Nevada, never Nevada. Adam Laxalt versus Catherine Cortez Masto including a brand new ad that is being run that I saw when I was in Las Vegas not but a few days ago. We're also going to get a look at the continuing, if not worsening, feud between Rick Scott and cocaine Mitch McConnell. Oh, yes, yes, yes. These two are going back and forth, and it's starting to make me wonder about some of the coverage around specifically the Republican Senate fundraising. I got a few questions that I'd like to ask. And then we see the return of our old friend, Jeff Maurer, writes the great Substack. I'm not wrong, or sorry, I'm not wrong. (laughs) I got another show called We're Not Wrong. His show is I Might Be Wrong. He's not his show, although he does do a podcast. It's called I May Be Wrong, and he dared to ask the question, what is a progressive? And to answer it, he went back into history, specifically some writing from around the turn of the century, to understand the roots of that phrase. It's a great combo, like all the stuff with Jeff normally is. Before we get started, let me ask a question. What the hell is going on with the generic congressional ballot polls? The Real Clear Politics average has them tied exactly as I record this. But let me just read some of the variances of the past few weeks. Late August, we saw two in a row from Quinnipiac and Political Morning Consult, Democrats plus four, Democrats plus five. Okay. Three days later, we see two from Trafalgar and Rasmussen. Trafalgar certainly tends to lean more Republican. Rasmussen has actually had Biden's highest approval ratings. They have it Republicans plus six and Republicans plus five. Not to be outdone, Economist YouGov has one that comes out yesterday, and that's Democrats plus six. I mean, what the what the hay's going on here? What? I mean, this is, these are, these are uh, 10 point swings. I don't know. Maybe we'll get to the bottom of it. Bird first. This is the most important race on the map for Republicans and Democrats, said one GOP strategist familiar with Nevada politics. 
Later adding, in Laxalt, you've got a candidate who can carry the change message very cleanly, unify all clans in the Republican Party, and is running a good race. This is very important, because if you follow the narrative that the Republicans are totally biffing this midterm, the reason why is because you have a lot of hand-picked Trump candidates that are novices, have no previous political experience. J.D. Vance, Herschel Walker, Dr. Oz. But Adam Laxalt has a history in politics. He knows how to run a race because this is not the first one he's running. And Nevada's important because... Nevada, not Nevada. Nevada's important because... It's currently a Democratic-held seat. So while Ohio's important, there is a retiring Republican senator there. Pennsylvania's important, but that's also a a retiring Republican senator. Georgia, Nevada, and Arizona currently have Democratic senators. So if the Republicans want to win that one crucial seat to put them over the top, well, then they're going to have to take something from the blue team. Quote, one Democratic operative. Democrats have shown that they have the ability to get out the vote and win close races in the state. The Cortez Masto campaign and the Nevada Democrats are prepared to do what they have to do this fall in order to be successful. So again, let's get a real quick refresher on the silver state. First things first, Democrats win there. They win statewide. Second, If you want to win statewide, you really only have to win one county. (laughs) You have to win Clark County. Everything else in Nevada is either a desert or Reno. And, uh, and, and, And either of them really matter. Third, there has been a guardian angel in that state for a very long time. His name was... Harry Reid, and I use that past tense because he is no longer with us. This is going to be the first big road test to see whether or not the Democrats can keep their stuff together as they take on a fairly well-organized and well-funded Republican challenger. One that isn't going to be wondering how to handle an attack ad or why his poll numbers aren't where he is or why his poll numbers aren't where he wants to be. That being said, Catherine Cortez Masto is not afraid to trade paint, especially on issues that she knows she's a winner on. Adam Laxalt praised the Supreme Court's decision overturning Roe v. Wade. Adam Laxalt saying, quote, this is a historic victory. Laxalt called today an historic victory. Adam Laxalt even called Roe v. Wade a joke. Roe v. Wade was always a joke. Laxalt supported overturning Nevada's abortion protections. He'd let states outlaw it, even for victims of rape and incest. Adam Laxalt's not for us. DSCC is responsible for the content of this ad. The visuals on this ad are, I think, brilliant. Somebody went into Pond5 or some stock photo website and just searched for middle-aged women who are very concerned. (laughs) So it's all women 
uh, uh, around the ages of like 35 to 65 and they're either looking at a laptop and they're slowly shaking their heads or they're looking at a television and they're just kind of got their hands on their hips all while Laxalt is painted as a extremist on abortion. Now, of course, the Laxalt campaign has pushed back against this. Spokesman Brian Frymuth called it dishonest and wildly inaccurate. However, there is no doubt that Catherine Cortez Masto knows that right now the Dobbs decision is the golden ticket for the Democrats. Here's the problem. Nevada has a law on the books that protects abortion up to 24 weeks. And that's well within the popular average. So it's not exactly a heart-stopping issue, at least with that electorate. But if you can use it as a wedge, it could be enough to get you over the hump in a close election. Now, the Democrats understand that this is a campaign where you need to defend your territory. That ad we just played, it's part of a $33 million spending campaign. And I know, because literally just watching the TVs in the sports book of the Orleans while I was there over the weekend, I saw it played at least three or four times. They are going to hammer Anybody with an R on the end of their name on the ballot with that message. So, where are we right now in the polling? Trafalgar Group, taken in mid-August, had Laxalt up three. And Fabrizio Anzalone has Cortez Masto up one. By the way, uh, Fabrizio Anzalone is a very, very interesting uh, polling firm because Fabrizio was Trump's guy and Anzalone is one of uh, Biden's guys. So them doing stuff together is certainly meant to indicate that they are a unbiased polling firm. They just care about the numbers. Still, that was only taken a few days after the Trafalgar Group poll. So everything indicates a tight race there. We'll have to see what happens. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to support this show, you should head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. The $3 level gets you two bonus episodes each and every week. And it gives you the ability to know where your money is going. I got my eye. I got my eye looking at all these campaign websites I'm looking to see when they're going to do something interesting, when they're going to do something big, because when they do, I'm booking my flights, I'm booking my rental car, and I'm booking my hotel all the way out there to see it. You better believe we're going to be back in Georgia. You better believe we're going to be back in Pennsylvania and anywhere else that you would like to see some coverage. Maybe it's time to make my uh, way on up to Wisconsin. Looks like that is a bit of a interesting race as well as we're going to hear in our second story today. 
All that being said, the one place where you can go to support it and make sure you get something for your money is TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $3 level gets you two bonus episodes each and every week, and the $10 level gets you that plus your name on the 2022 midterm cover. According to Punchbowl Media, there was a 45-minute closed-door leadership meeting on Tuesday evening in Washington, D.C. That meeting was held with the Senate GOP conference. And nobody, nobody dared speak about the elephant in the room. The feud between Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and National Republican Senate Chair Rick Scott. They have had a months-long fight over politics, policy, strategy, and fundraising. Mitch and his team went around the table, this all according to Punchbowl, reviewing the status of the top Senate races. Now, the Republicans still do believe that they can win the majority back in November. but. They're a little bit miffed that things are as close as they are. That's because the NRSC has not, according to many, been doing their jobs. Indeed, after a record funding haul, there doesn't seem to be as much money as one would hope left. And so, McConnell has been funding the Senate Leadership Fund, a separate Republican super PAC that is also pouring tens of millions of dollars into several key races. That would be a slap in the face for old Rick Scott because his organization is supposed to be the official one. Having somebody who's above you in leadership direct money to another group kind of cuts your balls off. Behind the scenes, GOP senators are maneuvering to make up for the committee's cash shortfall, with discussions under ways to take matters into their own hands to circumvent the NRSC entirely and directly help candidates who need crucial resources down the home stretch of the high-stake campaign. That, according to CNN. Punchbowl goes on to say that everybody involved with the McConnell camp wants it to be very clear whose fault it is if the Republican candidates aren't able to make it over the hill in November. And it's not Donald Trump. No, it's Rick Scott. We covered a few weeks ago when we were talking to the money man, Dave Leventhal, about what the role of the NRSC is and the question of exactly where the vast majority of the $181 million that was donated to that, where that money went. Well, Rick Scott was on Fox News today, as I'm recording this Wednesday, and he answered those questions straight away. Where did all that money go? Well, we did the right thing. We spent early. 
I mean, here's the problem with campaigns. If you wait until the last month, I mean, there's too much static, there's too much noise out there. So what we did, as soon as our candidates got through their primaries, we started helping them. We, ha we put up ads with them to talk about what they believed in, and we started early on, we started defining the Democrats. That's put us in a position right now that we not only can keep our 50 Republican seats, uh, but we also can pick up probably as many, doesn't mean we'll get that many, but we got six competitive seats where the Democrats, they're all the Democrats in our competitive seats are underwater. They're under 50% on their fave. But Senator, you see a lot We're, of these races that are tightening up um, in Florida, in, in Ohio, uh, you know, and these candidates are, are in need of money at this point. So some of them are pointing fingers at your leadership and saying that, that it's not working. What do you say to them? Well, let's look at let's look at the numbers. You know, we we're going to keep our we're going to keep our hardest races to keep. Ron Johnson's going to win. We've invested with him He's early. He's behind he by about early. five points right now, right? Yeah. So, Ron Johnson's either tied or up a little bit or down barely. I mean, we, we if you look at ask these candidates that we've invested in, if they think we should have invested early, absolutely. They needed the money. They got through tough primaries. Some of them did. They needed the resources, and we did it at the right time. Here's the other piece of dirty information that we have on the NRSC. Whispers and rumors that Rick Scott, one of the senators from Florida, former governor of Florida, is using this spotlight to advance his own political career. Scott has cut NRSC-funded ads with himself pushing his own legislative agenda. By the way, something that McConnell very strongly opposed. And the NRSC's fundraising stalled out after a spike early in the cycle, leaving the Democratic version of that committee to have more than twice as much on hand as the midterm elections are now in the home stretch. Does that worry Scott? Well, apparently it's worried him enough to go down to Iowa next month for an event with Republican Rep. Marionette Miller-Meeks and Governor Kim Reynolds. In case you haven't been listening to this program for the last few weeks, we haven't been feverishly covering any Senate races in Iowa. And let's take one more look at that money situation. The NRSC raised $181.5 million through the end of July, but right now only has $23.2 million on hand. Meanwhile, the Democratic version of this raised less with $173.1 million, but has $54.1 million on hand right now. As you heard Scott say in that Fox News interview, the reason why is because they spent early. The only problem with that is almost everybody on the Republican slate is either behind or in a dogfight with their Democratic challengers. So you can't say, even if you did spend early, that that was wise. Oh, and to quote Punchbowl Media, who uh, interviewed one senator that asked to not be named, they're getting kind of sick of this. Quote, the McConnell-Scott thing is between Mitch and Rick. We're just trying to win the majority, and none of this is helping us. All right, you ready to get into some conspiracy theory? Let's get into some conspiracy theory. I wonder if there is a little bit of a concerted effort on the part of Cocaine Mitch to make sure that, A, 
there is a excuse for why Republicans might not take the Senate. That would dovetail with the fact that he has come out and said that one way or another, the Republicans and Democrats are still going to be close with maybe a one seat advantage one way or one seat advantage the other way. But also, he wants it to be known that should the Republicans win, and I do think that they think they can win, that he's the knight in shining armor that helped make it happen. Because no matter what, there's one man looming over everything. Whether or not he runs for president again, Donald Trump will be a force in Republican politics until the day that he dies. He is going to do rallies. He is going to raise money and he is going to put forth candidates that kiss his ring forever. Now, you can say a lot of things about Mitch McConnell, but a dummy ain't one of them. And a anything less than a political strategist is something else that you should be wary of saying. So he knows that Trump hates him, but Trump hated Brian Kemp. And now you got to imagine that Trump is rooting that Brian Kemp continues to drag Herschel Walker up that ticket. And can soak up enough Republican votes in the suburbs that he denies Raphael Warnock a term in the Senate. What have you done for me lately is Trump's motto. And if the thing that Mitch did lately is set up a Republican majority, while Rick Scott, for whom all reporting seems to indicate Trump is not the biggest fan of, well, that's a pretty good way to restart a conversation. What is a progressive? Amongst all the identifiers and classifications bouncing around, where did that name come from? One of our favorites, Jeff Maurer of the I Might Be Wrong Substack, asked that question and unpacked it. He will do that further as he joins us right now. Welcome back to the show, Jeff. Thank you very much for having me. Good to be here. What is a progressive? Boy, that's a great question. And it's a question I asked myself because I realized I, I didn't I didn't really know. Maybe I maybe I don't know still, but I, I know better than I did a couple of weeks ago. A progressive, I would say, having done extensive research, by which I mean <laughs> I read a book. Yeah, I read a book, which was a collection of essays by progressives because I want to let them speak for themselves. I would say a progressive. Is a person who believes that liberalism is not enough. They and again, I'm drawing from progressives as they presented themselves around the turn of the century. They felt that the slate of negative rights you know, that is the freedom from something, usually yeah. freedom from government oppression. That was a very big deal around the founding of the Constitution and things like that and was dominant in American politics throughout the 19th century. They felt that that was not enough and they wanted to get into positive rights, the right to something. And that's why they were starting to argue for things uh, like labor laws, child labor laws, mm -hmm. uh, FDA, so that we know what's in our food. 
they were starting to get into progressive taxation and things like that. And then also they were very into good governance. So direct election of senators and things like that. That is that is my takeaway from their presentation of themselves around the turn of the century. So then let's let's real quick before we go any further on that, define a liberal in in the sense of what progressivism is reacting to. Right. Right. And I'm I'm glad you say that because when progressives around that time were saying liberal, they were really referring to something that I would think of as more of a libertarian. There we go. Cla- classically liberal as somebody who d- doesn't want to call themselves a Republican would say. Yeah. Cause like I consider myself a liberal who is into progressive taxation. That's not really who they're talking about when it's, you know, Woodrow Wilson, when it's Teddy Roosevelt and people of that time, they are referring to the right wing of American politics at that time, which, and again, this is their portrayal. So, you know, maybe it's a gigantic straw man, but They're saying those people are only into the negative rights, freedom from government tyranny, however you define it. And and their take was that those people are saying, and we're done and we're good here. We've done it. America success. Let's kick back and enjoy the fruits of our awesomeness. Whereas progressives were saying, no, 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 no. There's more to do here. Which is funny because I, I wanted you to define that because someone to the left of a liberal is kind of how we would describe a progressive, or at least you would describe a progressive on Twitter now, but we (laughs) would not be referring to anywhere close to the same thing. Right. Yeah. That's how I'd been using it, which is why I wrote this essay because I'd been using it to just mean like, yeah, liberal, but like very much so. Right. (laughs) Yes. A very on purpose liberal. (laughs) Yeah. It's like you're trying to describe like Elizabeth Warren. Right. Yeah. And you're like, well, liberal doesn't quite capture it because, you know, I guess Pete Buttigieg is a liberal. So then what's Elizabeth Warren? Yeah, that's how I'd been using it. And I used it in an essay I wrote called The Great Dumbening. And one of my in the comment section, one of my readers pointed out, you know, progressivism isn't just like liberalism but very much so it's its own movement it has roots yeah around the turn of the century so i thought oh let me look into that a little bit and write about what i find so in the the self description of a progressive how much does it define itself as having a commingling with collectivist or socialist or communist philosophy uh i i would say I would say very little. There is one essay that definitely, you know, I read a collection of essays. So some of the essays much more than the others. Some yeah. of them definitely did wander into that area, but only a few. So uh, my perception is that it's not endemic to progressivism. It's not uh, progressivism, you know, as I took it, was not just socialism, <laughs> socialism by people who are afraid to say socialist, right? Yes, yes. Some of those tendencies, what they what they do share with socialists, I would say, is a very robust belief in their ability to reform society, ability to reform and change society. That reform and change usually comes through the form of government action. So there is some change uh, is some similarity with socialism there where they're thinking we can change this. The government can be handed this responsibility and it'll be good. So some overlap there. Yes, I, I would say, yeah, to use a metaphor uh, 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 for which will will uh, uh, resonate with with city dwelling progressives, I would compare it to kind of like socialism is kind of like 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 a prefix menu. 
where like no matter what <laughs> you're just getting everything uh, uh, yeah. and and progressivism is something that's a little bit more of 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 an a la carte it's like well we would like yeah. this and let's how much does it cost just to pay for this one element of the government intervening as opposed to that being the the default in 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 more of a communist philosophy yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, now now I, I think you're describing like what I am and, and what if you think about it, most people in modern American politics are. There are very few people who are so absolutist that they would say, no, there should not be any government progress. If firefighting shouldn't even be the government. Yes. You know, one libertarian dude you knew in college is like the only person advocating that position. Most of us will say, OK, this thing, that thing, you know, the military <laughs> yeah. healthcare for a lot of people like me uh, should be government and then other stuff private. Uh, so, yeah, I think I, I think you're describing a thing that describes both many modern progressives and then also progressives at the time, because. Nobody was calling for everything. Nobody in this collection of essays was calling for everything to be socialized. You're yeah. right. It was a yes to some things, no to others. Where where do you think we get the alignment with uh, the social or identity Issues, Because certainly I think in our lifetime that has been synonymous with progressive was was progressing on what now even on on in certain conservative circles you look at as, like you said, yeah. the freedom from tyranny, the freedom from persecution if you're gay, the freedom from uh, 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 being being judged or, or judged by your by your country for various different parts of your of your identity. And, and yet that seems to be at least when I look back in history, those were progressive ideals initially. Yeah, uh, I don't I don't totally know where the connection comes in. That is something that sort of surprised me in reading progressive words from the turn of the century is that identity stuff wasn't in there a ton. Yeah. Maybe that's a product of American politics at the time, right, left, no matter who you were, you weren't going to say like, you know, interracial marriage, that's like a thing that should happen. That's a good thing. You weren't going to say, you know, being gay is fine and whatever. No, there was no part of the political spectrum that was okay with that. I mean, one of the people we most closely associate with progressivism was Woodrow Wilson, who was yes. a progressive in so many ways, and he was a gigantic racist. Yes. So, yeah, there there wasn't a ton of that in there, although you are also right that these days when we're when we're struggling for words and we say, hey, hey, you know, progressive, because we are talking about like Elizabeth Warren or referring to somebody who's like maybe maybe pretty goddamn woke, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's when we that's when we reach for the progressive word. It, that's kind of how we use it now. But but no, I didn't find a ton of identity stuff in what they were talking about back then. You know, I, I would guess that it's probably, you know, so much of our modern identity politics is sort of modeled after the playbook that came with the split of the Republican Party in the 60s, the 50s and 60s and 70s as the Southern Democrats kind of mm -hmm. split away from the the Northern Democrats and the Northern Democrats were way more coded as progressive and yeah. the civil rights battle that that came from there and those that jumped over from one side to the other, I guess that's where it kind of comes in. And then everything else from there, be it gay rights or trans rights or, any, or anything else is sort of running off that exact same playbook of this is where we started with civil rights for African-Americans. Yeah. And this is where, this is where we ended up. And so that kind of gets, lumped into it but but also it's yeah. like from what you are describing there was much more of a rigid 
ideological idea of, of progressivism. And now it has almost become its own political party with its own plank of things it likes or doesn't like. Yeah, almost. It's like you would say the progressive wing of the Democratic Party and people would basically know what you're talking about, right? Yes. I, I think I think the other thing we should add is that um, I think a lot of what's going on in modern times is the word liberal has been so denigrated. Fox News was <laughs> highly successful turning the word liberal into a dirty word that like Democratic politicians they may be kind of changing now, but for a long time, they didn't want to be associated with the word liberal. Yeah. Uh, so it's like, all right, what well, word do we, do we want to right, di- Digression, digression. Do we yeah. want to give Fox News the credit for that? Or, or is it Rush? <laughs> or or is it like, like who who gets who gets the pelt for making the, 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 uh, 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 the liberal a dirty word? That's a great question. And whoever it is, is like a legend in conservative circles, right? It's like you're the no, person who- who, you know, slayed the magical dragon or, you know, caught the biggest fish in the lake. It's like, good on you. If you're a conservative. It's, 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 it's got to be, it's got to be Reagan era, right? It's got to be something that comes out of like, 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 like Carter, Carter might've uh, uh, been, been Maybe. where that turns. I, I don't know. I feel like, you know, so I was born in 1980. I feel like when I was starting to be aware of politics in the nineties, Democrats were still saying liberal. And by the time, by the time the mid two thousands came around, it was mostly not a label we would apply to ourselves. But I don't know. So maybe 9-11 then? Maybe it's, it's you can't be a liberal when planes like, are flying like, into I, buildings? Fox, Fox News and conservative radio seem like the culprits to me, but the exact date, I don't know. Yeah, I would guess though that it has to be, because it has to cross into mainstream culture enough that that the politicians are scared of it as a brand. Yeah. It became um, it, it came to mean something kind of, you know, just effete and un-American, right? Like you hate America. You hate America and you are too weak to defend it. So at that point, I maybe. would say, you know, because because then then it's probably Rush and, 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 and the Newt Gingrich and the Republican Revolution and stuff like that. Uh, uh, and, and maybe it's like it becomes associated with with a corrosive moral element that then leads into the globalist kind of stuff. Uh, yeah. Uh, Cor- corrosive moral element is part of it, too, isn't it? There's, yes, there's this yeah. implication that you're some kind of sex freak. So maybe yes. it is Bill Clinton in that era. <laughs> Which, yeah. I mean, although really it's like, come on, the the, the history of D.C. is rife with uh, a corrosive sex freak. Oh, nobody, yeah, nobody has a monopoly on weird sex stuff in D.C. No, that's uh, bipartisan. I, mean, I, think, I think you could probably track uh, effective bipartisan legislation and the decline of it with. <laughs> the decline of politicians smashing each other's mistresses. I think if you, when, when you saw more, if we could get data points on that, like you would say the more that that happened, the more that Congress worked together across party lines. That, I mean, you know, put one on the X axis and one on the Y axis and one of regression. Let's, let's see. This go. can be there, studied numerically. We can figure this out. All right. So, li- so liberal becomes a dirty word. And now all of a sudden a yeah. uh, progressive can sort of fill that void. Yeah. Right. And, uh, but let me say something else about, cause you're asking like, where does the identity stuff come in? And my answer yeah. was, I didn't see a lot of it in uh, the stuff that I read. But one thing I did see was in the course of progressives trashing what they see as liberalism, which, like I said, is really more libertarianism is what they're talking about. But they were very down on the concept of individual rights. 
they they okay. see they often see individual rights as code for the rights of the extremely wealthy. You know, rights of robber barons, rights yeah. of the very powerful people in society. So they're kind of down on that, which of course pushes them more towards collective rights, group rights. Once you're there, once you're at that point, it is very easy, I think, for that stuff to become identitarian stuff. And perhaps that's the evolution that they followed. That that makes a lot of sense. And also, if that is the case, then you would certainly say that that, that seems to be some of the the bedrock elements of of the modern uh, uh, at least you know democratic thought process that that there is a a push toward these are the guarantees this is what we get as as Americans we will fight for it we will fight for keeping this line uh, uh, there is so much talk especially both in mainstream democratic and and on more uh, uh, progressive circle uh, democratic rhetoric that is always focused on. Here's where the social safety net is. Here's where we 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 make sure that you get at least this, which mm-hmm. uh, uh, is you know, and and certainly the demonization of oh well, the we, that only erodes when we take individual rights too far, or 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 somebody weaponizes their individual rights to to destroy the the collective aim. That that does seem very relevant. Yeah, that's that's kind of where they were at. Um, I, I don't know how correct they are about that. For for me, I see nothing incompatible at all about yeah. individual rights and a social safety net. And yes. that is actually one of my one of my takeaways from uh, this project was that I, I, I see nothing incompatible at all about liberalism and progressivism. I think it'd, it'd probably be accurate to call me a liberal progressive. And that doesn't seem to me like a nonsense phrase. That seems like a thing <laughs> that, that can exist. Yeah. Um, I will say it, it doesn't follow that all progressives are therefore also liberal. I think you have liberal and illiberal progressives. And I think some of the people who have been bothering me, some of the people I've been spending some ink writing about in the last year or two are the the illiberal progressives. And, and I think that's that's where the problems come in when the people who do take collective rights to identitarian places and um, not only think that uh, negative rights need to be added to, but but just aren't into the concept of negative rights. I think that's that's where uh, liberals like me are butting heads sometimes with the leftish elements of the Democratic Party. And I would I would wonder if part of that is also because you know, progressivism that you are describing is a political philosophy that, you know, kind of exists in writing campaigns and the ballot box. Whereas mm-hmm. now, and this might be, you know, the, the fact that our brains are permanently warped from spending too much time on social media, but like, <laughs> uh, it's, it's a personal philosophy it is something for which you need to kind of prove in in kind of daily acts and deeds uh mm-hmm. uh you know in 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 your life uh, otherwise you are are kind of in violation of it if if you are not always sufficiently progressive then then you are almost more damaging than somebody yeah. who is outwardly hostile yeah yeah i i think it's interesting to ask why are you interested in politics? You know, people are just in politics for all sorts of reasons. There are people yeah. who 
want to make society better. There are people mm-hmm. who just like kind of the sport of it. Red versus blue. I'm on the yeah. blue team or I'm on the red team. And, and I find that combat fun. Mm-hmm. Then I think there are people who are just they're just angry. <laughs> they're just angry <laughs> and they're dissatisfied. Not that that's necessarily bad, but they are angry and they're dissatisfied and they want to <laughs> watch their enemies die a horrible death. That's kind of why they're in it. They, well, they... And, and, and hold on. I would add one more thing to that. Uh, find enemies and yeah, then watch yeah. them die a horrible death. That's, it's that's not right. Like, well, it, it, if you're yeah. able to watch one enemy die a horrible death, like, well, that's awfully satisfying. And then where, you, where am I going to get that fix next? Oh, better find a new enemy. And then hopefully they will be publicly flayed. It's a it, yeah, <laughs> look, I get it. I like to think that's not why I'm interested in politics, but I get it. So one thing progressivism has to offer, and again, I'm referring really to the you know classic turn of the century. Classical, classical philosophy. Barnstorming yeah. zeal. Barnstorming zeal. The, the, the rhetoric is uh, hot. It's, it's spicy. They mm-hmm. are taking no prisoners. They are not yeah. here to be conciliatory. They are not here to play nice. They are here to persecute the wicked. Yeah. So if that's what you like about politics, if that's what you're into, then that brand of rhetoric, which could be progressive or not, but in this case, it is progressive, that can really speak to you. So I think sometimes uh, progressives can be, they don't have to be, because again, I think I'd, I think I'd count as a progressive. They can be people who are drawn to that zeal, who are drawn to that project of persecuting the wicked and yeah. and I think I think that's that's why sometimes we see some overlap between people who identify as progressive and people who would maybe we would identify as uh, uh, kind of out there. Let's put it that way. Sure. Well, let, let's go back to another through line that I think exists both in the, uh, uh, you know, the, the ancient text and our modern philosophy. Uh, mm. It is a populist field. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It or is at there. least it is, is frequently there. doesn't maybe yeah. not always. But yes, it's frequently. But is there, and especially I think in what you are describing about, it is there for the unheard masses. It is there for the union halls. It is there for mm-hmm. the the unemployed. It is there for those that feel that they have been left behind by some great force. And that ultimately is the only thing that, that exists. I mean, it's what, when I would go to cover Bernie Sanders rallies and Trump mm-hmm. rallies, there were, there was a, a very similar energy of those people felt the world was moving in the wrong direction. The government right. was moving in the wrong direction. And finally somebody stood up and said it, their solutions to it could not be more different, <laughs> but uh, 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 the, the feeling, the populistic feeling was there and very much, especially through, you know, the, the turn of the century and, and leading up through, through the fifties and the sixties, the progressives were very much, like you said, the, the barnstorming firebrand populace. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to remember that the people I'm reading are writing at a time when trusts were a big thing in the American economy. We need Mm -hmm. to remember these were not capitalists who got very rich playing the game better and they happened to win. Like, no, they were they were monopolistic. They were they were building trust. They were playing by what are stuff that is now against the rules, but it became against the rules around that time. Mm-hmm. So you had, you know, very powerful people in the economy. You still had political machines. We don't spend any time these days thinking about political machines. Tammany Hall does not loom large in the public consciousness these days, but it did back then. 
so you and it also it's important to remember things like senators were not directly elected until progressives and other people pushed for it and, you know, passed that amendment. Yeah, there there definitely was a palpable feeling of there is this powerful group of ruling elites. How true was it? It, you know, it seems pretty true from my perspective. A hundred years I mean, later, yeah, I, you yeah, know, historically pretty true. <laughs> it seems pretty, seems pretty true. I mean, I would want to actually see a, a breakdown of like how big of a player in the economy was standard oil. I mean, my perception is very big, but I don't, I, you know, let me see the numbers, but, but yes, it's certainly a perception and definitely in the campaign of 1912, this is the one where Taft was the Republican nominee. W- Wilson was the Democrat and Teddy Roosevelt ran as an independent trying to win a third term. Roosevelt and Wilson are railing against these trusts and these political machines and very much taking a populist progressive tack, portraying Mm -hmm. themselves as the advocates of the people against the powerful interests. I have to say, they get really mealy mouthed when they start to talk about what exactly the people want. It's just like the people want. Well, in Teddy Roosevelt's case, it's like the people want more Teddy Roosevelt. That's that's clearly what he decided they wanted. Give the people what they want. Yeah, give the people what they want more TR. I think it's a little, a little ironic that he's railing against powerful entrenched interests and also trying to become the first president in history at that time to win a third term. <laughs> uh, who's more powerful than a third term president? Yeah, <laughs> but whatever. But that's uh, again, that's uh, a circle they were able, a square they were able to circle, or whichever one is correct. <laughs> sure. Yeah. By simply yeah. being extremely vague about what "quote unquote" the people wanted. Well, and it's funny when you look at something like political machines and you would still say that there are entrenched organizations for which put forth people that have been kind of blessed by them. But now it's a lot more centered around, you know, donors and the semi-permanent kind of campaign class like that, that uh-huh. there's enough money in politics that somebody who runs a campaign doesn't finish the campaign and say, oh, Back to being a cobbler until the next time that uh, the election rolls around, they they you know either go to another it's country true. I, or I, they. I can't they, even remember yeah. the last time I heard the phrase "back to being a cobbler" in a concession speech. <laughs> exactly, it has exactly. been a while. <laughs> you know, everybody everybody kind of floats around, and so you're always looking for the next thing. But but it's not in the situation yeah. where. Uh, you know, you would you would say, "All right, this is one person who runs." everything and they run everything kind of permanently political machines were sophisticated operations we, we certainly yeah. have influence we certainly have yeah a political class i don't think they're anything approaching the effectiveness of a political machine but yeah the the if you look at it as as a reaction to these people are too powerful you know, that that the money mm-hmm. is too concentrated, which I guess yeah, we, we still see today. You know, there's there's a reason sure. why we hear the, the the rallying cry of the the one percent versus the ninety nine percent and stuff like that is is yeah. uh, because concentration of wealth is something that that certainly uh, uh, can be looked at as, like you said, the the weaponization of the personal right, the individual right. They have taken it too far. And mm-hmm. now this is the consequence. Like if we're ever going to measure it. What other measurement than money? Mm-hmm. But, That's certainly how they how they saw it back then. I mean, there are similarities between then and now. I, I'm not going to yeah. go way down the road of saying, you know, we're living. You hear this sometimes. We're living in the new Gilded Age. I don't even know what that means. 
I'm certainly not going to say anything that vague. Um, but it is definitely true that the progressives of the time were very concerned with that concentration of power and money. And people now are too. And yeah. you would refer to many of those people as progressives. So yeah, I'd say that's a pretty clean through line. I should add that, you know, the, the, the essays I read were, I was trying to get to the roots of progressivism. Yeah. There's a whole, then there was a whole century of progressivism in between then and now. So, you know, yeah. I'm not dealing with the many, many decades in between then and now. I'm just sort of trying to, you know, learn about the roots of the movement. Exactly. And and I think that there is, there, there's, there is a worthwhile of saying like, oh, well, that was a thing that was mentioned a lot then. And, and this is, and this is where it is now. And uh, uh, I, I don't, you know. I, I would agree with you that it's, it, it's trite to kind of copy and paste things that people semi understand from, you know, a Wikipedia article onto our <laughs> modern era. So you can hyperbolize it even more because that's yeah. something that we apparently are in short supply of. But <laughs> I, I will say, you know, politically, we do seem to be in a golden age of populism like that. That is that is something that that is uh, uh, tapped into you know, more and more, uh, uh, much to the consternation of our, our mutual friend, Andrew Heaton, who would just very much <laughs> like to refer back to a time when very finely mannered bureaucrats just let every, like everybody know it's totally fine. Uh, I, I uh, hope, just, I hope, uh, yeah, it, it, I assume, uh, most of your listeners are familiar with Andrew Heaton's, uh, general affect and he's a good friend yes. of mine, but yes, he would like to, uh, I feel like he he would he would like to go back to an era in which uh, sophisticated pipe smoking was a major component of uh, society because yes. he would he would fit right in. Not that he smokes a pipe, but he definitely would if that he were would. socially acceptable. He would love to be peer pressured into smoking a pipe. Uh, I think that would be the final the final moment where he knows that his revolution has has come uh, come to fruition. First, an era one, in which men wear jackets and ties on airplanes is the perfect era for Andrew. Yeah, Heaton. I was going to say step one: bam, flip flops from airplanes, uh, 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 and 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 from there on, we can see the fruits of his labor uh, eventually start to pile up. But yeah, no, I, I do think that there is uh, there is there is something to that that root fear of where do I fit into our government? And, mm -hmm. and, and you've seen that kind of throughout the world, but also, you know, on, on both ends of our, of our political spectrum, that those are the most, uh, 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 I would say influential wings of our, of our party. If you look at, you know, even what's happened with, with the Biden administration, I don't think that the student loan debt stuff happens unless progressives are, are pushing forward. And that yeah. comes from the idea oh. of a bunch of people saying, Hey, if you're going to be giving away a bunch of money, Give me some money. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I don't. Uh, I, th there was definitely a moment in 2016 when Trump won and Brexit had just happened. And we all went, whoa, are we are in a new pop populist era, it seems. What are the limits of this populist era? I think those two things as far as I'm concerned, did not turn into broad based movements. That kind of was the high ebb of populism. Certainly, you know, in, in Britain, I wouldn't say that they have just taken a populist turn and that is the new character of British politics. Now, nah, that's no. not really what I'm observing. Trump did lose in 2020. Um, he's still out there, but uh, I also wouldn't say that America has taken a major populist turn. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, 2016 well, was a very populist year. I'm not sure that that was the beginning of a landslide. 
I, I no, I, I don't think. It, I think it's 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 not smart to say that that this was a change in all of the rules. I do think mm-hmm. that it was an introduction into a new form of politics. I think it matched with the fact that uh, small dollar donations were becoming more and more important. Mm-hmm. And and so now uh, uh, saying something that's going to get everybody to their apps and hitting the recurring donation button uh, or, or answering their emails was going to be something that mattered more. And so the messaging was fit to match that. Uh, but I also don't think that it necessarily has, I don't think the populism is a philosophy. I think that it's yeah. a strategy. I think that that there's a million yeah. different things that you can graft on top of it. Progressivism certainly was one back at the turn of the century. Yeah. And I think that, Correct. that uh, you know, the, the stuff that we're seeing now is another form of it. But for folks to think that it's, it's like, oh no, populism always goes one way or the other. Uh, uh, you know, I, I don't think it takes a whole lot of of, of digging to see. No, uh, ang- angry right. people who get told what they want to hear from politicians <laughs> have have been a winning solution for a very yeah. long time. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And not all populism is progressive, and not all progressivism nope. is populist. Yeah. Absolutely, but there, uh, but it, it is true. There is definitely progressive populism. That's a thing as well. Indeed. Uh, and you can read all about it and all the other roots of progressivism in the uh, uh, brand new newsletter from Jeff Maurer. Where can people find that? I might be wrong.substack.com. That's where you find all my stuff. That one is called What's a Progressive Anyway? So if you're looking for that one, that's the one. But uh, all my all my crap, as I often refer to it, is at I might be wrong.substack.com. <laughs> And by the way, uh, uh, you're killing it uh, uh, on that. It's been it's been so great to to uh, uh, watch uh, that that Substack grow. Uh, it has been uh, awesome. You're doing you're doing a great job. I would encourage everybody to go and not only uh, subscribe to it, but also subscribe to it. I don't know what is it like. Is there is there what is what is the 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 difference between <laughs> I want it in my inbox and then I want to pay money for it. What, what is oh, that on Substack? <laughs> you can pay money for it if you'd like to be nice or to show that you're a big shot and you can just throw money around. But at the moment, it's all completely free. There is no difference between the free experience and the paid experience. You can pay if you would like to. And also, yes. I'd like to mention that, uh, there's an audio version. If you're not a big reader, it can also be downloaded as a podcast. Well, look at that. Easy peasy. Uh, mm-hmm. Jeff, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And that wraps it up for me. Politics, Politics, Politics is written and hosted by Justin Robert Young for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. Our program was edited by Brett Stewart. If you would like to say thank you to Jeffrey Maurer, you can go to his Twitter, px3guest.com. Letter P, letter X, number three, guest. You want to email the show? It is theyoungamerican at gmail.com. You can hit me up on Twitter at px3tweets. On Twitch, you can view me live, px3live.com. Our newsletter is px3newsletter.com. Share this podcast with your friends, family, and clergy, px3podcast.com. Of course, you want to give me just a little something, something, a one-time donation to say a thank you, good sir, for making this podcast and putting it out on the internet for free. PayPal.me slash payjury. On Venmo, it is Justin-Young-20. Cash app is PX3Cash. And of course, send anything that you would like, including hats, 
to P.O. Box 153184, Austin, Texas, 78715. Now, the only way you're going to get our bonus content is TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Our $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news that we miss on our free podcast schedule. And our $10 tier gets your name read at the end of the program like these fine folks in the Titanic. $10 tier. Including Matt, MC Dradio, Unsafe DB Level, Katie, Amanda, Yeo Pinball Shop, DP4 Bongo, Neemeister, Catherine, Todd, persons familiar with the matter, Invoke Gloria Young for King of the New World Order, Edison, Up, Up, Down, Down, Left, Right, Left, Right, BA, Select, Start, Dr. G, Neil, Charles, Darren, 100 Mile Runner, Idris Arslandian, Blue Front, and the Lenina, DL, Steven, Chad, Nomadic Terran, Diana, Turn 2, Miranda, Janelle, Adam, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul, is awesome. Brad, Richard, D. Laser, just another pilot. Middle aged Mike who loves Frank got abducted. Utah, Jimmy Montana, the Gen A L D L D L D. Really? Chopper, Andrew, and Joshua, you want your name read on the program? Only one place to do it. Take politics seriously. Dot com. Hope you all have a good weekend. I hope it is, uh, uh, hope everybody's staying cool, man. Uh, a shout out to all my California friends who are sweating it out. Triple digits in LA, yipes, stripes, up in the 90s in the Bay. And I know for a fact that there ain't a ton of apartments in that area that have AC. Everybody keep cool. I love you. Till next time. Is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying, some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and a still more talk about politics, but this, this is the only show that dares discuss. Oh! Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.